You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. This is Luke chapter 13, verse 1 to 9. And if you were here on time, which I'm noticing so many more of you are, which I'm me a clap for you. You heard an amazing lectionary passage from Isaiah uh, that ultimately, and the, the, the center of the text was, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So keep that in mind. And then we have Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, and it says, there were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Are those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put manure on it. That's poop, just so everybody knows what manure is. (laughs) Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not... You can cut it down. The word of the Lord. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time together. I pray right now that praise and worship wouldn't stop because the music did, but I pray that we would listen with the same intensity that we were worshiping you with. I pray, Heavenly Father, that there will be a transaction between my mouth and the ears of the people and that you would do something with these words. Make them better than what is being said. In your holy, precious name we pray. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Happy Lent to everyone. Lent is a season of remembering that our mission in life is to be light in darkness. To not just pray that suffering would be removed, but to enter it ourselves and transform it from the inside. We've been talking for the last few weeks about the enduring life. Jesus, the enduring life. And I want that phrase to mean Jesus, the life that endures us. The life, as we said, that doesn't ever have it up to here with us. The life that can put up with us. And we want to talk about that because we want to be lives that can endure other lives. I hope. We should be a church that can endure other lives. We should be a church that doesn't get fed up with people. We should be a church that has patience and kindness We should be a church where Jesus wouldn't want to come in here and flip tables. We'll talk about what makes Jesus want to flip tables in a moment, but I like our furniture, and so we should be the kind of church where Jesus doesn't flip tables. In Advent, the cross had purple fabric on it because in Advent, the color of purple is the color of royalty. And so we welcome a king, but there's a catch. He's an infant. He doesn't show up in majestic procession. 
he shows up crying and being needy, and we hail king of the Jews. Amen? But then when Lent rolls around, we put purple back on the cross, because purple is also the color of bruising. And bruising and royalty in Jesus are the exact same thing. Bruising is how you know love is real. If love doesn't open you up to the possibility of getting bruised, it's not love. If our opinion comes first and so our love is safe, it's not love. If our worldview comes first so our love is safe, it's not love. If what we like comes first before love, then it's not love. Love is love when it opens us up to the possibility of being bruised. Love is love when we have to have our ego bruised, our opinion bruised, our taste buds bruised. Love is love when there's cost. Lust is free. Love is expensive. And so when we hail him king, he's an infant. When we hail him king again, he's bruised. Because humility and vulnerability are what make royalty in the kingdom of God. And so we want to pray that that's the kind of church that we are, not the kind of church that is pompous, not the kind of church that thinks it has it all together, because we don't. Maybe you can amen this. Your pastor doesn't. There we are. Yeah. We don't have it all together. All we are is people who know we don't have it all together, and we don't have it together together. That's what Sunday is. Sunday's a bunch of people without it together, not having it together together. That's what we do, and if that's really who we are, then it would be easy to be a guest here. Because all you have to do is not have it together to feel comfortable here. The enduring life. The first week we talked about the life that rescues. And we talked about how Jesus endured temptation, not for himself, but for us. And so whenever we're tempted in any way, and not just with the obvious temptations, but tempted to give our opinion when giving our opinion isn't the best thing to do. Whenever we're tempted on any level, and we endure it, it's not just so that we're better, it's so that we can continue to remove evil slowly in our endurance. So when we're tempted, we're not just being tempted so our own character can grow, we're being tempted as a rescue mission to help others who are being tempted. Last week we talked about the life that participates, and we talked about how Jesus pronounces judgment and then he enters the very judgment he pronounces. And we said something scandalous and true, which was the judgment of God and the mercy of God and the wrath of God are the same thing. Because when he pronounces judgment, he then enters his own judgment for us. And so are we the kind of church that merely judges? Or are we the kind of church that if we're right about our judgments, we get involved in that life and help that life from the inside out? Anything other than that is called gossip. Today, I want to talk about the enduring life, the life that sees potential. Jesus, if we were a football team, Jesus would buy our jersey. And he would wear it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a joke. I'm going to tell a quick story that probably I shouldn't, but I'm going to. I'm going to because I want everyone to wake up. But in high school, uh, a girl friend of mine broke up with me because she obviously has no taste. And 
she was on the, she was a cheerleader for the football team. And since she was the newest one, everyone else got to pick what jersey they were going to wear first. So she had to wear the jersey all day of the player that didn't get chosen by the other cheerleaders to wear the jersey. My cousin Brett is here right now. He can verify this. The jersey that she had to wear, the guy's last name was Skank, and I'm not kidding. So she had to walk around all day, and it delighted my soul. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I didn't have to say anything. But the funny thing is, now I stand condemned because Jesus would love to wear that jersey. And when we trade teams and we opt out for a better contract, instead of wanting to be there for the fans like many athletes, he would still buy our jersey. Because Jesus doesn't give up on us. He's not a fair-weather savior. He always roots for the underdog. He became the underdog. Jesus has better range than Steph Curry on a bad day. He hits the final shot for people who don't even know how to play. This is what we celebrate during Lent because this is how we celebrate Easter. The life that sees potential. The life that always says there's a chance when it looks at another life. So Isaiah says to Israel, he says, The Lord your God says, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. And we apply that verse in all kinds of different ways, which is perfectly fine, but we have to apply it in its original context first. Isaiah says to Israel, all those nations that have abducted you, stolen you, enslaved you, are manipulating you, have bought you, that brought you into exile, they're going to call on me and they're going to repent and I'm going to save them. And then he says to Israel, just so you know, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Why did he have to say that? Because he just said, the ones that are persecuting you, the ones that are causing you to bruise, I'm going to save. And the minute he says, I'm going to save them, he has to say, my ways are not your ways because mercy is not our ways. We want to yell about justice from the comfort of our own phone, but we don't want to actually have to do something that costs us for it. And so God has to say to us, my ways are not your ways, I'm merciful. My ways are not your ways, I'm rooting for people. My ways are not your ways, I want the least of these to get saved. My ways are not your ways, the worse you are, the more I want to love you. And he has to say, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And St. Augustine said it this way, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts precisely because they're lower. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts because they're down with the person who doesn't deserve it at all. His ways are higher than our ways because his way became an infant and his way grew and his way became a man and his way then says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do to the very people nailing him to a cross. That's his ways. They're not ours. So let's let Lent have its work. This is God calling us to love better. This is God calling us to be a church that gets bruised on behalf of a world that doesn't deserve it. Because not one of us in here deserve the freedom that Jesus' bruising gives us. Am I the only one? Was there like a secret I didn't hear about where we do deserve stuff? I did not get the email or the tweet about it. 
Lent is calling us out and saying, my ways aren't your ways. For my ways and your ways to line up, then you have to love the ones that can't love you back. Not the unlovable. I can't stand that phrase. None of us are lovable. His spirit on us makes us lovable because he's lovable. And when his spirit is on us, his spirit's lovable, and then we become lovable. But we cannot be a church that hears things from the Bible and lives on the Bible and then uses it to judge people. Watch this. The Bible is often identified by a sword, yes? And Peter is often identified by the, with the church, yes? Upon, these gate, upon this rock, I will build my church. Peter takes a sword, and when somebody's attacking Jesus, Peter slices his ear off. How many times has the church used the Bible to eliminate somebody's ability to hear and repent? Because we're using it to judge. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't help Peter. He bends down and he picks up the ear and he looks at Peter and says, don't ever do that again. Faith comes by. They need to hear forgiveness. They need to hear a message that says, we're here to get hurt for you. We're here to get bruised for you. I'm telling you right now, I am standing in this pulpit because at least 100 people in this room believed in me when you probably shouldn't have. Most of you are in this room not because of the Bible, but because a friend told you about it. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Jesus has been so busy picking up ears all over the place because we use the Bible and we use church stuff to judge people that we think are less than we are. As if we only call him Lord and not Savior. When he, too many ideas running through my head. When God was giving out his law for the first time, his first line of the beginning of the law was, I'm the God who delivered you from Egypt. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me and lists the 10 commandments. But the commandments don't come before God says, when you follow these and get it right, always remember, you only have them because I delivered you. So even if you get every one of them right, which you won't, you only have them because I delivered you when you couldn't deliver yourself. So there is no way to behave well enough to not at least undo the part where he says, you're only here because I saved you. Okay. All right. Adam and Eve sin. (laughs) Spoiler alert, in case you didn't know. Adam and Eve sin. And their first sin is to eat fruit that is the knowledge of good and evil. And we have tried to talk about what their sin actually was. And I finally, this is just unbelievable to me. Yes, they wanted to be God on their own. Yes, they wanted to usurp God's power over them. Yes, all of these things. But here's the reality. Here's what we don't talk about. The fruit that tempted them was the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Why is this the way to take God off the throne? Why is this particular fruit of the knowledge of good and evil the way that they can push God off the throne and get on the throne of their own life themselves? Here's why. Because the presence, or I should say the acquiring of knowledge of good and evil gives us the ability to judge. They didn't have the ability to judge because they didn't know right and wrong. So judgment was reserved for the only one who did. The judge himself. The judge who judges by entering into his own judgment. Watch this. God judges by entering into his own judgment in the person of Jesus. Adam and Eve 
eat that fruit. And now they become able to judge. And when judgment came, she made me do it. Been saying that for a long time. And because Eve couldn't say, he made me do it, she had to, I was about to make a terrible men and women joke just now, but it does actually boggle my mind that Eve didn't blame Adam. Hmm. We should talk about that later. She blamed Satan. Look at this. When God judges, he enters into his own judgment on behalf of the ones who deserve it. When we judge, we throw everybody besides our own selves under the bus. We push him off the throne. We become judges and we judge ourselves righteous and we judge others horrible. Or we judge ourselves horrible, which is equally as wrong because we have to know that perpetual and chronic low self-esteem is also judging in a negative way because we can never call bad what God called very good. We're not good at judging. Let's talk about that for a minute. Everybody remember Jeff Foxworthy? Like, you might be a redneck if you mowed your lawn and found your car or something like that. I figured I would do my own little one, but mine won't be funny because it's true and it's harsh and... It's probably going to hurt, but that's fine, because I love you, and I know most of you like me. It's cool. We got it. You might be a judge if you discuss blemish more than beauty in another. So when you and your friends get to texting and talking, discussing your coworkers, just ask yourself this question. Is it easier to discuss blemish in another coworker than it is beauty? I hope you all don't talk about me when we leave. Does it make you feel more secure when you talk about a flaw that somebody else has, especially somebody who's been more blessed and higher up than you? They only got the promotion because. I know they got a really nice house, but they don't know what they're doing with their money. Yeah, have fun being in debt forever. She's all excited because she got married. It's going to end soon. Why is it that we have a hard time talking about how somebody at our job did deserve the promotion? Is going to be good with the new house? Is generous and caring? And so even though they're driving that car, they're probably going to pick a lot of people up in it because that's the kind of person they are. That marriage is going to work out. If it's easier to talk about blemish than beauty in another person, you might be judgmental. And I'm saying you might be. Maybe that's not you. Just saying. Thank you. You might be judgmental if you associate congregating with condoning. I don't hang out with those kinds of people because if I do, I don't want anyone around to know I want to avoid the appearance of evil. Shut up. Shut up forever. If you say that one time, leave. Don't let me hear it. I'll talk about you behind and in front of your back. We have absolutely desecrated that verse to say, listen, I was at a mosque on Friday. 
I'm not going to apologize about it. And there might be a couple people in this room who were not happy that I was there. I'm not condoning. I'm loving. Me being there doesn't say that I agree with everything. But I'll tell you this much. A Muslim person kneeling on the ground after a mass shooting has a lot more faith in them than somebody running their mouth about how there is no God on the streets of Main Street. Somebody who's angry with God has a lot more faith than somebody who says he doesn't even exist. And just because someone's having trouble with the church because it hurt them at some point, newsflash, we're good at doing that, doesn't mean they don't know Jesus. Somebody's got to go to the wrong place to shine light. Congregating is not condoning. If you're embarrassed to be seen around a group of people, please call my wife and make an appointment so we can all sit down. I'm I'm not kidding. I almost said I was kidding. I'm not kidding. I was only kidding because nobody in here is like that. Congregating is not condoning. And if we avoid the cost of being with people who are not like us, honestly, ask yourself this question. Look at your social networks. If everybody in them is the same looking kind of person, you're judgmental. The four people who got that, I appreciate you. Thank you. Our social networks should look like salt and pepper, yes? They should be well-seasoned, yes? They should look different because we're hospitable and we're all things to all people. You might be. Just saying. I'm, I'm going to get punched in the face by a few people for this one. You might be judgmental if you excuse personal acts of harm as merely just responding. I only said that because of what you said to me. I only got rude because you got rude with me first. I only yelled back at you because I'm being defensive because I was afraid of what you were going to do. All of my sinful acts are because of yours. Everything you do has nothing to do with me. Every time you do something wrong, it is just you sinning against God. But when I do something wrong, it's because you're sinning against me and I'm just trying to defend myself. Has anybody done that before? Like, am I just... One person raised their hand in the back. I see your hand. You can put it down. I see your hand. You can put it down. If everything we do wrong in our own heart and mind is if it's weighted as the logical seesaw response to what somebody else has done wrong, we're not living a life of repentance, which means we're not experiencing the forgiveness of sins, which means according to Zechariah's song in Luke chapter 1, they will have the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins. But if I'm not repenting, then forgiveness is not visible. And if forgiveness is not visible, then neither is salvation. It may be that repenting is the thing that we will always get right. Because it is honestly the thing we'll have to do the most. So we should have a lot of practice. People, somebody literally sat in my office and asked me, Pastor, why don't you preach about sin more? Want to know why? Because I don't want to talk about myself all that much. 
Stop being surprised. And, and listen, at the point of attack, not 45 minutes after a fight, at the point, if you can one time in the moment say, you know what, everybody stop. I'm off. I'm off. This is me. I'm getting all mad. I'm starting to say things I don't mean. This is me. If we can start to do it at the point of attack, not afterwards when all the drywall has a hole punched through it, to quote an Eminem lyric. I heard it on the radio the other day, so I was like, all right, cool. I'll use that one, M. <laughs> What's happening in the church? If after that, while we're putting spackle on a wall, then we're saying sorry, that's great, that's good. But what happens if we could pull that sorry into the moment? And hit the brakes of that momentum and say, look, I'm going to walk away after I say this, but here's the thing. I don't trust myself enough to think I'm right right now, so let me walk away and think about it. Literally, we could change the world with that kind of humility. Because our homes would change. Our social networks would begin to change. We'd free other people up to be humble and not defensive. Would we get bruised? Yeah. But we would be joining our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Here's a fun one. You might be judgmental if you define a person by a single act, but never the positive side. For instance, you lied once, now you're a liar. You hurt me once, now you're abusive. You stole once, now you're a thief. You said personal stuff out loud, now you're a gossip. You broke one promise, and now you're untrustworthy. Judgment is not only pointing out a flaw. Judgment fully becomes judgment when you pass a sentence after pointing out that flaw. Because that's what judges do. They sentence you. So if Anthony lies about something, and now I deem him a liar, I have passed sentence on him. How quick are we to do that? But when somebody does something good, we don't pass sentence on them ever. Yeah, I'll let that sit for a minute. When somebody does something wrong, we jump on it. You're this kind of person. You're that kind of person. I knew you were going to do that. I was waiting for you to do that. My wife says that to me sometimes. I was waiting for you to do that. Wait for Jesus to come back, please. I mean, really gamble. You were waiting for me to mess up. That took five seconds. What was the over-under on that one? Acting all like, I got this. I knew you were going to mess up. Me too. Me too. I knew I was going to mess up, and I knew you'd be waiting for me to mess up, so now what happened? Why are we waiting for somebody to get it right and then calling it out the minute it happens? Behind their back too. What if somebody did good stuff and we started gossiping about them? You know that person I work with is the best? That's not fun. You know, he deserves that marriage. That's not fun. You know, she was having a bad day, and she took it out on everybody, but it was really nice. She was great. That's boring. 
That's why there's no more good news on the news. It's just editorials about what everybody disagrees with. All the time. Just saying. I'm more than just saying. Making a point. And then finally, you might be judgmental if you put someone out more easily than letting them back in. Prodigal son's dad. Yeah, you could leave, but the minute I see you, you're coming right back in. We don't live like that. We are so quick to defend our lives by throwing up walls and not letting people in, but we never let them back. It takes one mess up to cast somebody out, and it takes a whole lifetime of people trying to apologize to let them back in. That is not how Jesus is. If he was, we would be having this conversation outside of the church. So what do we do? What's the point of my ranting and sweating for no reason? They bring up a headline to Jesus. The first headline they bring up is, did you hear that Pilate killed some Galileans and then mingled their blood with our sacrifices? Without getting into all that, this is disgusting what Pontius Pilate did. He desecrated not only people, but their whole worshipful system. And Jesus, upon hearing this headline, says, here's the problem. If you think that there were sinners because something terrible happened to them, then you are, you're wrong. Now watch this. Then Jesus shows that he knows current events too, which, can I just say, from Karl Barth, from Pastor Mark, who he would be very happy that I put him in the same category as Karl Barth, always read your Bible with the newspaper in your left hand and your Bible in your right hand. Do not read the Bible apart from what's going on in the world. Because watch what Jesus, Jesus knows the headlines too. And he says, have you heard about those tourists that had a tower fall on them? They're like, yeah. And Jesus says, if you think that they're worse sinners because something tragic happened to them than you, you're wrong. Now you might be saying, what does that have to do with us? Have you ever heard anybody say Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans because of the voodoo? Earthquakes hit Haiti because it's dark? The Pulse nightclub shooting happened because everyone in that club was a homosexual. And Jesus would say, if you think something bad happened to them because they're worse than you, you're wrong. That's not why. It's the same today as it was then. We judge. We judge because we're afraid of tragedy, and so we try to make an excuse for why tragic things happen to other people and not us. And Jesus is saying, go ahead and make all the excuses you want. But if sin is the excuse, you're just as sinful as they are, so watch out. Now, he's being allegorical. But he's saying, if you've made sin a category of why bad things happen to people, I'll quote Tim Keller from Presbyterian Church in New York City. If I demand that God rid the world of evil, I then have to be demanding that he rid the world of me. So what does Jesus do? He tells a parable. Of an owner of a vineyard who plants a fig tree in his vineyard. 
Which at that point, because he already has a vineyard, the fig tree is a delicacy. So this owner, he has everything he needs. He puts a fig tree in his garden just because he loves fig trees. And so as Robert Capon said, if we are the fig tree in this parable, God did not put us in a garden because we're his business. He put us in a garden because we're his delight. Just because he likes to. And then for three years, he comes and he looks for fruit on this tree and he finds none. And the word for three is supposed to be, three is supposed to represent resurrection in the Bible. And in this case, when we hear the word three, there is no resurrection. So you gasp and you say, there's no chance for this tree at all. So now this tree represents everybody you've ever known personally or know as a demographic or know as a kind of person or a political party or somebody with a certain lifestyle. It stands for everybody you've ever said. They will never bear fruit. That's who this parable is about. And all of a sudden, a vine dresser comes because apparently this vineyard owner is bougie and he has a vine dresser. And the vine dresser comes and says, hold on a minute. Give me one year with this tree. Let me dig a trench around it and let me put manure on it and see if we can't get water and fertilization to this tree. And then he says, if after one year it doesn't bear fruit, you can cut it down. Now notice the vine dresser won't ever cut it down. He says you can cut it down. The you he's talking to is the father. The vine dresser is the son. The Holy Spirit is how we can even understand the parable in the first place. The vine dresser says to the vineyard owner, you can cut it down. But here's the thing. In the Trinity, the vine dresser is the vineyard owner. And the vineyard owner is the vine dresser. And Jesus ends the parable. It's like shutting off jazz in the middle of a song. You weren't supp- it's like holding in a sneeze. It's like having an unresolved melody in your head. Jesus, finish the story. He does finish the story. When he becomes the tree that gets cut down. When he becomes the tree that they tried to dig a ditch around to get water and all he can say is, I thirst. He becomes the tree that is cast outside the city gates, as it says in the book of Hebrews, where the dung piles are. If that's the vine dresser, then that tree still has a chance. I hate to break up this wonderful moment we have with another silly story, but I think you'll get it. Dumb and dumber. I'm not so good at transitions, just whatever. Or a genius at them, one or the other. Jim Carrey is standing in front of a woman who is so far out of his league that he couldn't even buy tickets to watch her play. And he's finally able to say, do we have a chance? It's the most famous line in the whole movie. And he's so nervous, he says, what are the chances of a guy like you and a girl like me? No, wait, that's not. What are the chances of a girl like you and a guy like me getting together? And she says, I don't know, one in a million? And he sits and thinks about it. And he goes, so you're saying there's a chance. Because all he heard is the one. He didn't hear the million. Fifteen minutes later in the movie, she's reunited with her husband. And the camera pans back over to Jim Carrey. And he says, hey, 
what was all that one in a million talk? The cross is the one in a million. The cross says there's still a chance. Jesus is always Lloyd saying, so you're saying there's a chance. There is not a person on the face of the earth where if God went to Jesus and said, there's no fruit, I'm going to cut them down. Jesus wouldn't say, give me one year with them. And you and I both know after one year, you won't be cutting anything down when I'm done with them. Because if they do after one year, still, if they're still not bearing fruit, I will go to the place and you'll cut me down. Two trees were cut down that day. The tree they used to build the cross and the tree of life who they hung on the cross, two trees were cut down that day. So all of us trees that will never bear fruit are not being cut down by anyone because Jesus was cut down. He's always rooting for us. Are we rooting for people the way that he roots for us? Are we looking at the worst people, the most broken people to us and saying, so you're saying there's a chance, Father God. They've walked away from you. They desecrate you. They don't love you. But you're saying there's still a chance. I am grateful that my family and friends and this church have always looked at me and said, God, so you're saying there's a chance. One more example. There's a group of people called the Desert Fathers. And there's a lot of stories. The leader of a, of a desert tribe out in Egypt, they were Christians, they were Christian mystics, and the leader was called the Abba, the Father. And it was a community probably of a lot of people like this. Dan, come here for a second, stand up. The community, all of you, bring this sinner, this vile, messed up person before the Abba and say, cast him out of the community, he has sinned. And so everybody stand up for a second. Stand up for one second. They bring him down with everybody standing up, and now you can all sit down. (laughs) This is what it means when the Bible says sitting in judgment, okay? So you've all stood up to let Dan in, and now you're all sitting in judgment. And you hand the leader all of the accusations against him. This is a story. And the Abba looks at them and says, you do realize these are, un- these are irreconcilable sins and you have to leave the community. And what happens is the gentleman walks down, you don't have to, you can sit down. He walks down the aisle and leaves the community and then everyone's looking at the Abba and here's what he does. He goes and he takes his hat and his coat and his briefcase and his umbrella and he walks out too. And right about at the door, they say, why are you leaving us? And he says, because in Christ, the judge was judged with the same condemnation that he judged with. And so if we're going to kick him out of this community, I'm leaving too. And they said, well, we want you to be here, so bring him back. That's the church. That's the church. If you judge, are you willing to go to the place of judgment with him? And if we judge people and Jesus says, you know what, you're right about your judgment, but I'm leaving too to go be with them. If we want Jesus to come back, we have to let them back too. Let's be that kind of church that is scandalously hospitable. Isn't this going to mess up our morals and values? Not if we're walking by the Spirit, it won't. Are we going to make mistakes? Yes. 
Is it going to complicate things when people are here that don't believe everything we believe? Yes. Is it easier to live life around people who are like you? Yes. But is it gospel when people say, I want to mess up the religious communities around us? Because here's the thing. Jesus doesn't flip tables at the prostitute's house. Jesus doesn't flip tables at Zacchaeus' house. Jesus doesn't flip tables at Matthew's house. He flips tables in his own dang house because nobody's ever going to anybody else's house. He never messes with the furniture in sinners' houses. He messes with the furniture in our house because we're not going to their houses. I don't want to be that kind of church. I don't want to pastor that kind of church. I want to be the kind of church that the religious community condemns us because of who we're hanging out with, and we know that then in that moment we are being like our Savior. Let's all stand to our feet. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you want to heed that call to get baptized and enter this life of Christ and break away from your sinful past and enter a new life symbolically in the waters of baptism and you haven't already signed up, would you just raise your hand? I see that hand, you could put it down. Salem, I think we have like 13 people getting baptized on Easter Eve. This is amazing. This is amazing. Good Friday, Easter Eve, Easter Sunday. We got to come out strong, not because, not because we want to look good like a full church, but we want to celebrate people. We want to celebrate people. On, on Good Friday, we want to hear, we want to learn how to speak when we're in times of suffering, which is what Jesus shows us on the cross. He teaches us how to speak when we're suffering. He says seven words. Seven is the number of perfection. He perf perfectly speaks in suffering. Easter Eve is the best birthday people are going to have. They're going to go into the waters of baptism in front of their family and confess that I'm walking away from my old life and I'm walking into a new one. Why wouldn't we want to be here for that? And Easter Sunday is when God hit the ultimate buzzer shot at the end and the underdog wins. Why wouldn't we want to stomp on the ground a little bit and make some noise in the bleachers a little bit on Easter Sunday, amen? Heavenly Father, I pray. In the name of Jesus, I pray that you would enliven us with hospitality, enliven us with love, enliven us with mercy and grace. Give us hearts to receive exhortation, Father God. Give us hearts to repent. Give us hearts to hear when we're walking away from the core values that you have for us so that we can become ministers, so that we can love the world better as we learn to be loved by you in repentance. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.